Well, good morning. My name is Adam. If we haven't met, I'm part of the team here at Oasis Church, and it's really good to be with you this morning. You know, if you've ever had a job, you've probably done a performance review. Normally happens towards the end of the year. You have to sit down with your supervisor to see how you're going, what you're doing well, where you could improve, and where you'd like to go in the future. Now, often these are helpful occasions. Hopefully, you're in a workplace where you're valued and encouraged. But this isn't always the case. Recently, I came across some comments on social media, which are apparently real comments taken from real performance reviews. And I wanted to share some of them with you. Someone writes in a performance review, since my last report, this employee has reached rock bottom and show signs of starting to dig. His men would follow him anywhere, but only out of morbid curiosity. This associate is really not so much of a has-been, but more of a definitely won't be. Another, he would be out of his depth in a parking lot puddle. This young lady has delusions of adequacy. He sets low personal standards and consistently fails to achieve them. And finally, this employee should go far, and the sooner, the better. (laughs) Now, the reason I bring this up is not just to make you feel better about some performance reviews that you've maybe had over the years. The reason is because last week, we kicked off a brand new sermon series that we've called Dear Church the seven letters of Revelation 2 to 3. What we're doing is we're looking at the seven letters which Jesus sent to seven ancient churches, which we find in Revelation chapters 2 and 3. And these letters which Jesus sends are a little bit like a performance review. Jesus is effectively evaluating these churches. He's encouraging them where they're doing well, He's telling them about where they could do better and where they've gone wrong, and he's showing them where he'd like to go, like them to go in the future. Jesus is evaluating these churches. And as we kind of read and study these letters together, we are able to evaluate ourselves. We're able to see what, what Jesus wants from his church, where, what he does not want us to do and where he wants us to go. Reading these letters is a little bit like looking into a mirror. We can evaluate ourselves and see how we're going. Now, last week, we kicked off the series by looking at the very first letter, the letter to the church in Ephesus. And we saw that the main message for this church was to love again. It was to recover the love that they had lost, their love for Christ and their love for one another. Today, we're going to be looking at Jesus' letter to the church in the city of Smyrna. And we're going to see that the main message for this church is to hang on. It's to not give up or turn away from Jesus, even in the face of violent persecution. Now, this letter to Smyrna is somewhat unique. Out of all the seven letters in in chapters 2 and 3, only two receive no criticism from Jesus. And the letter of Smyrna is one of them. Jesus has no complaint about this church. This is a positive performance review. Jesus only wants to 
encourage this suffering church. And so what we're going to do is we're going to just dive straight into Jesus' message to the church in Smyrna, and we'll see what it has to say to us. And we're going to look at it under two simple headings. Suffering for Christ, that's the, the situation in Smyrna, and then we're going to look at comfort from Christ, the promises that Christ makes to this church and to us as well. So let's begin with number one, suffering for Christ. If we want to understand Jesus' message to the church in Smyrna, we have to understand a little bit about the city of Smyrna itself. Now, I said last week that it wasn't easy to be a Christian in Ephesus. Well, it was downright dangerous in Smyrna. Smyrna was located about 50 kilometers north of Ephesus. You might be able to see it there on the coast, just a little bit north, and you would come to Smyrna. It's about the distance from here to, to Bribe Island. Now, the city of Smyrna still exists to this day. It was renamed Izmir in 1930 and is today the third largest city in Turkey. Now, Smyrna was apparently a very beautiful city. They, uh, their kind of advertising slogan was the pride of Asia, the, the pride of Asia Minor. Uh, they actually had a little bit of a rivalry with Ephesus going on, a bit like the, the rivalry between Sydney and Melbourne, even though we all know Brisbane is easily the best city in Australia. Smyrna boasted a, a beautiful, uh, a famous stadium, a famous library, a public theatre. Smyrna also apparently had a very beautiful harbour. This is what archaeologists think Smyrna uh, would have looked like in the ancient world. Beautiful city prosperous city, proud city. But it was not an easy place to be a Christian. Now, we don't know exactly how the gospel came to Smyrna. We're not told in the book of Acts or anywhere else in the New Testament. But however it happened, there was a church community that had got started in this city of Smyrna. And they were suffering under violent pressure. Now, why were they suffering persecution? What was the, the reason for this pressure that they were facing? Well, Smyrna was not only a beautiful city, Smyrna was also a fiercely patriotic city. Smyrna, of course, was part of the Roman Empire, and Smyrna was deeply loyal to Rome and to the Roman Empire. In fact, around the year AD 25, there were a number of cities in Asia Minor that were competing for the honour to build a temple devoted to the emperor. And as you can probably guess, Smyrna won. And so from that point on, once a year, every year, by law, every citizen had to go into this temple to burn some incense before a statue of the emperor and then say, Caesar is Lord. Now, I'm sure you can imagine that this caused a problem for the Christians in Smyrna. There is no way that they were going to do this. I mean, imagine if a, a law was passed tomorrow, that every year, once a year, we all had to go into the city to burn some incense before a, a statue of Anthony Albanese. Would you do it? Of course not. If you're a Christian, you'd say, I respect our prime minister. I honour our government, as Scripture tells me to, but my worship is reserved for Jesus alone. He alone is Lord. And this was the attitude of the Christians in Smyrna, and as you can expect, it didn't make them very popular. It made their lives very difficult. 
In fact, in this passage, Jesus actually highlights four specific trials that they were facing at the time. The first trial they were facing is poverty. That's what Jesus says there in verse 9. He says, I know your afflictions and your poverty. These Christians in Smyrna were poor. Now, it's not exactly clear why. It could be that their businesses were ransacked, their homes were robbed. It could just be that the people in Smyrna refused to do business with them, to do trade with them, maybe even refused to employ them. But either way, these Christians in Smyrna found it hard to make money. They found it hard to support their families. They were poor. And the truth is, for these Christians in Smyrna and for all Christians in all places at all times, there will be financial consequences for following Jesus. Now, it might not be as severe as it was for these Christians in Smyrna, but there will be financial consequences for following Jesus. For us in our day, it might simply mean that we miss out on some things. Maybe it means that we miss out on a promotion at work because we're a Christian. Maybe it means because we want to be generous to others and we want to give to others. Maybe it means that we we miss out on other things in life. We miss out on extra spending money. We miss out on on an overseas holiday. We don't get to pay down the mortgage as quickly as we would like or whatever it might be. Now, I'm not saying that these consequences don't matter, that they're not important. They do and they are. Jesus sees them. But it's worth asking ourselves, If I was living in ancient Smyrna, or if I was living in modern-day India, or Nigeria, or Afghanistan, would I be willing to give up financial security for Christ? Would I be willing to be poor for the sake of Christ? This was the trial that these Christians in Smyrna were facing, poverty. The second trial they were facing was slander. We see that there in the second half of verse 9. Jesus goes on, he says, I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but are a synagogue of Satan. So these Christians in Smyrna, they were not only copying it from the locals, they were also copying it from the Jews. The Jewish population in Smyrna, they actually had an exception uh, for this emperor worship. The Roman authorities said to them, well, we know that you kind of worship Yahweh, so so you don't have to go and burn incense in the temple. You can just pay us some extra tax, which is what the Jews did. And it seems that the Christians probably said, hey, we would like that exception as well. We would like the same exception that our Jewish friends have. And the Jews, because they considered these Christians to be blasphemers, to be illegitimate, and they said, no, 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 they're not with us. They're not one of us. Yeah, they worship a Jewish carpenter, but they're not part of the Jewish faith. They seem to be throwing them under the bus, attacking them, slandering them, reviling them. This is why Jesus calls them there a synagogue of Satan. Not something you want Jesus to call you, is it? But it makes sense when you think about it. I mean, how is Satan described in the Bible? Well, he's described as the accuser of God's people. Revelation 12. He's a liar and the father of lies, John 8. And so Jesus' point is that these Jews are simply joining in on Satan's work. They're doing what Satan does. They're attacking God's people. They're lying about God's people. They're slandering God's people. Now, to be honest, for the Christian, 
slander is an occupational hazard. It, it, it just kind of comes with the territory. It's part of what it means to be a follower of Jesus. Do you remember what Jesus said in, in John chapter 15? He said, if the world hates you, keep in mind that it hated me first. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a, a German minister and theologian. He was actually executed, uh, put to death by Hitler towards the end of World War II. He said in, in, in some of his writings, he said, not recognition, but rejection is the reward disciples of Jesus get from the world. This doesn't mean we enjoy it. This doesn't mean we go looking for it. This doesn't mean that we act antagonistically, but we should be prepared for it. Shouldn't be surprised by it. We should even expect it. These Christians in Smyrna were in a tough spot. They're poor, they're being slandered, and you'd think that would be just about enough, but Jesus says it's about to get worse. He says there is more coming for you in the future. And the third trial they were about to face was prison. Look there at verse 10. Jesus says, I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, in the ancient world, the prison system worked a little bit differently to ours. I think there was the food probably wasn't quite as good, and there were less TVs in the place. But also, prison in the ancient world wasn't used as long-term accommodation. You didn't generally receive a life sentence and then spend out your days in prison. You didn't even generally get a sentence more than a few years. Instead, prison was used as a coercion tactic. It was used to try to scare you into obeying a certain law. Or it was used as a holding cell for those who were going to be put to death. And this seems to be the case in Smyrna. These Christians would be thrown into prison to try to scare them into worshipping the emperor. And if not, then they would be put to death. And this is the fourth trial that Jesus mentions there in verse 10. He says, be faithful even to the point of death. Jesus is saying there will come a time when some of these Christians in Smyrna will be executed for their faith in Jesus. And we know from history that this is exactly what happened. One of the most famous martyrs in Christian history is a man named Polycarp. Polycarp was a young man when the book of Revelation was written. Many believe that he was actually a disciple of the Apostle John, the author of the book of Revelation. Now, Polycarp actually became the bishop of Smyrna. He was a leader of this church community in this city. And later in his life, when he was 86 years old, Polycarp was burned at the stake for refusing to renounce his faith in Christ. In fact, when he was ordered to reject Christ, he replied and he said this, For 86 years I have been his servant, and he has done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king who saved me? While they were actually gathering the wood for the, the fire in which Polycarp would be burned, before he was burned alive, he prayed out loud and he said, O oh Lord, Almighty God, the Father of your beloved Son, Jesus Christ, through whom we have come to know you, I thank you for counting me worthy this day and hour 
of sharing the cup of Christ among the number of your martyrs. Now, what an amazing prayer to pray as you're about to be burned alive. What an amazing attitude to have as you face death. And it begs the question, what gave Polycarp such resolve? What gave him such profound inner strength in the face of such painful suffering? And I think part of the answer is that he had read this letter from Jesus. Part of the answer is is that he had read these amazing promises that Jesus makes in this letter, the comfort that Jesus gives to these suffering Christians. And this brings us to our second point. You see, we've looked at suffering for Christ, the, the situation in Smyrna. But then we see also in this letter comfort from Christ because he gives a number of comforting truths in this letter to Smyrna. And the first comforting truth that Jesus gives is the sovereignty of Jesus. Look there again at verse 10. Jesus says to these Christians, he says, Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Now, I'm sure you can imagine the Christians in Smyrna, when they read this, they think, we've got no money, nobody likes us, and now the devil's going to put us in prison. This following Jesus thing doesn't seem to be working out very well. But look closely at this verse. Notice that Jesus is in complete and total control. He says what is happening. He says for how long. He even says who is going to be involved. He says the devil will play a part. Now, Jesus is not saying the devil is going to do this, and I'd really like to stop him, but I can't. Jesus is saying, no, the devil is going to do this. And I am going to allow him to do it. Now, I know this raises another bigger question. Why would Jesus allow the devil to do this? Why would he allow him to do anything which brings harm to his people? And of course, there's lots of things that we could say in response to this question. But I want us just to remember two important truths. And the first is God's good purpose in our suffering. You know, Satan wants us to suffer in order to destroy us. If I was to put a finer point on it, I would say Satan wants us to suffer in order to destroy our faith. God allows us to suffer in order to deepen us, in order to deepen our trust in him, in order to deepen our faith in him to change us, to shape us, to mold us, to prepare us for our heavenly home. You know, this was true even in the life and the death of Jesus. I mean, if God had a good reason for Christ, the Son of God, to suffer and die, and he did, was to accomplish the salvation of sinners, well, then there must be a good reason for our suffering. If God knew what he was doing in the death of Christ, and he did, And he must know what he's doing in our pain and suffering. Even if we can't always recognize it or understand it. John Stott puts it this way in his commentary. He says, as gold 
is purified of dross in the furnace, as all of the impurities are burned away. So the fires of persecution can purge our Christian faith and strengthen our Christian character. This is God's good purpose in our suffering. But the second truth we need to keep in mind is God's glorious promise to put an end to suffering. Pain and persecution and suffering have an expiration date. Our world and our lives won't always be this way. And when Christ returns, evil will be extinguished. Satan will be vanquished. Death will be destroyed and our tears will be wiped away. When we walk through the dark valley of pain, we can remember the words of 2 Corinthians chapter 4. That our light and momentary troubles, they're not eternal, they're temporary. They're achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. Now, of course, there's, there's much, much more that could be said, but for these Christians who are suffering in Smyrna, the sovereignty of Jesus would have been a comfort to them. Jesus hadn't let go of them. He was in complete and total control. But they could also take comfort in not just the sovereignty of Jesus, but also the solidarity of Jesus, the sympathy of Jesus, that he knows and he understands what they're going through. You know, when Jesus tells these Christians in Smyrna to to not be afraid of poverty and to not be afraid of, of slander and not be afraid of death, to even be faithful to the point of death, he's not asking them to do anything that he hasn't already done. Jesus himself experienced poverty. Jesus himself experienced slander. Even Jesus was arrested, tried, and executed unfairly. Jesus understands what they're going through. He knows what it's like. He's walked in their shoes. But of course, he's also done more than that. He hasn't simply experienced these things like us. He has also defeated these things for us. And that's the third comforting truth that we see here in this passage. There's the sovereignty of Jesus, the solidarity of Jesus, and there's also the victory of Jesus. You know, I said to you last week that the the letters each begin with a different description of Christ. And the one in this letter is not random, it's not accidental, it's very purposeful. Look at, what, look at how Jesus begins the letter. He says, These are the words of him who is the first and the last. Now, this is nothing less than a claim to divinity. In Isaiah 44, God is described as the first and the last. And now, Jesus, the Son of God, is eternal. But what has this eternally existent Son of God done? He is the one who died and came to life again. Now notice how this is flipped around. We live and then die. Jesus died and then lived again, came back to life. In other words, Jesus not only experienced death, he conquered it. He triumphed over it for us. Revelation 1, Jesus says, I was dead and behold, I am alive forever and ever. And it's this truth that enabled Polycarp to face death with hope. It's this truth that enables all Christians in all times and in all places to face death with hope. Many of you would know or you've heard of Tim Keller, probably because 
I quote him in every second sermon. But the truth is, through his speaking and his writing, Tim had a deeply formative influence on my faith. In fact, God really used Tim at a key point in my life, uh, in, in my teenage years, to really open my eyes to the goodness of Jesus and, and, and the, the beauty of the gospel. Now, you may not know that Tim passed away last weekend. Tim was uh, diagnosed with pancreatic cancer a few years ago, and he passed away last Friday, aged 72 years old. And Tim w- was very fond of saying, he would say it all the time, he would say, all death can do to Christians is make their lives infinitely better. All death can do to Christians is make their lives infinitely better. And apparently Tim lived this truth to the very end. According to his son Michael, uh, some of Tim's final words were, there is no downside for me leaving, not in the slightest. Because Tim knew that Jesus has defeated death for us. That not even death can separate us from God's love. And this leads us to another comforting truth that we see in this passage, which is the perspective of Jesus. Look again at verse 9. Jesus says to this church in Smyrna, he says, I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. When everyone looked at these Christians in Smyrna, they saw losers. They saw poor people. When Jesus looked at these Christians in Smyrna, he saw winners. He saw rich people. He saw the richest people in town. Because what makes you rich in this life? In the only sense that truly matters. In the only sense that ultimately matters. It's whether you possess Christ whether you're treasuring Christ. And this is so important for us to understand because I don't know about you, but I'm so often tempted to live by sight and not by faith. To live according to what I can see and not what God's word says. And so I feel happy when when life is going well. I feel safe when there's money in the bank. I feel loved when people say nice things about me. But when these things are not happening, it's so easy to think, well, where are you, God? Why are you doing this to me, God? Don't you care about me, God? It's so easy to lose perspective. And the truth is, when we belong to Jesus, we can be poor, but very, very rich. We can be suffering, but very, very safe. And we can be hated, but very, very loved. Because things are not always what they seem. And we need to learn to see from God's perspective. You know, the Welsh pastor, Martin Lloyd-Jones, he was one of the greatest preachers of the 20th century. But before he became a pastor and a preacher, he was actually a very distinguished physician, a doctor, He took a 90% pay cut to to get into ministry. He went from being a doctor in London to a a pastor in this church in a small Welsh village. He lost money. He lost status. He lost prestige. He was dismissed from all elite social circles. Many years later, 
a reporter asked him, was it worth it? Was it worth losing all those friends and all that status to be a minister? And he replied, let me get this straight. I gave up nothing. I received everything. And this is the perspective that Jesus is giving to the church in Smyrna. It's to see the way that God sees. Because when everyone looks at these Christians, they see them as poor and pitiful. But when Jesus looks at them, he sees them as eternally rich and deeply blessed. And this is actually the last comfort that, that Jesus gives in this passage, which is the salvation of Jesus. Look at how he ends this letter to the Christians in Smyrna. He says, be faithful even to the point of death and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. To the Christian who is victorious, to the one who clings to Jesus, the one who holds on to Jesus, like a barnacle holds on to a blue whale, even in the midst of suffering, even in the face of death, Jesus says to that Christian, you will not ultimately die. You will not be condemned. You will not go to hell. You will receive the crown of life. You will be received into the very presence of God. And so to this church in Smyrna that was suffering persecution, and to Oasis Church in our day, Jesus says, if you will not give up, if you will not give in, if you will be faithful even to the point of death, there is a crown waiting for you at the finish line. Christ himself is waiting for you, ready to receive you with open arms. And that is a reason to keep on running and to not give up. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word to us. Thank you that it both lays before us the reality of life in this world, the reality of trusting you and following Jesus in this world. And also, it lays before us Christ, the promises that he makes, the comfort that he gives. Lord, if some of us have walked in here today and if we're honest, we might say that we've lost perspective. We've started to look to other lesser things. And we've taken our eyes off of Christ and his perspective. Lord, help us today to fix our eyes on Jesus. Help us to do a course correction. Help us to cling to Jesus and not let go. And thank you, Lord, for the promise in your word that the work you have begun in us, you will bring unto completion. So help us, Lord, to keep following you, to keep running the race that is before us until our faith is made sight. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.